Who you called an old, Tim? <laughs> uh, all right, if you want to turn to Joshua chapter 24, uh, we are going to be finishing our series on the book of Joshua today, so the sermon's going to be a little bit different. We're going to do some recap and then look at the passage. And if you notice Joshua 24, um, it's at the end of the book. We've been in this series for about 12 weeks, and we were last on Joshua 10, so I just have to cover 14 chapters today. I hope that's okay. Uh, When I was uh, in seminary, it's where pastors uh, train, um, we we had this practice that we would do um, with preaching and with Bible study, and what we would do is uh, you'd become really familiar with the book of the Bible and become so familiar with a book of the Bible that you could preach, uh, or you could tell a micro story is what it was called. And a micro story is seven words. So can you sum up the entire book in seven words? And in order to do that, you have to become familiar with the book and the themes of the book. And uh, so it's a great practice really for anybody to become so familiar with a book that you can tell a micro story, tell it in seven words. Um, But... To get us through 14 chapters, here's my micro story of of Joshua, of the whole book of Joshua. Um, Because there's a lot of themes, there's a lot of things that we learn about God, about his people. But here's my micro story. God's sovereignty, God's sovereign ability, and our obedient activity. God's sovereign ability and our obedient activity. So you read through the book of Joshua, you see this happening over and over again. God has this plan and this will and this hope for his people, and they're invited to respond. And through their response, God does just miraculous things. God's sovereign ability in our obedient activity. Uh, we started the series uh, back in September, and I, if you're new to the church, I was on sabbatical this summer. Uh, first time I had a sabbatical in nine years. It was amazing. I got to be away for a few months. I've actually now been back as long as I've been gone, which uh, is weird to think about. Um, but we knew this was a new seri- season for the church. Like we, in the last uh, three years, have merged two churches together. We got through this global pandemic. It felt like uh, God was doing something new. The church has grown, um, and all sorts of exciting things were happening. And for me, like, sabbatical was kind of the bookend of, like, the last decade of my, my life and ministry and, and kind of thinking ahead, like, what does this next season look like for, for me and for our congregation? And I had three uh, movements that I shared when we started this. I just want to recap those real quick. Uh, the first one was, uh, this was a, a new season where we just wanted to have a deeper experience with God, to go deeper, have a deeper encounter with him and with his presence, and, and that happens through prayer and through scripture and through serving, through sacrifice, that we would have an, an encounter with God that just takes us deeper. And so often um, the, our relationship with God is just something on the side, but to say, no, we, we want to have a, a deeper relationship, a deeper encounter. One of the things I got to experience this summer, ran into this group called 24-7 Prayer when I was in England. And uh, they just call the church to prayer. They, they're trying to catalyze prayer in the local church. And they would say, anytime a church just commits to pray, God, God does amazing things. And it, looks, it manifests in di- different ways. Sometimes it's revival. Sometimes it's uh, people uh, com- coming to Jesus. Sometimes it's the church activated for mission. There's all sorts of things that happen when a church prays. And, and I want us to be a church that, that prays. So a couple things with this deeper experience is, in January, we're going to be starting a series on 
called How to Pray, a simple guide for normal people. Uh, maybe you like to pray, maybe you don't, but we'll be going through uh, what, what prayer looks like. Um, in, uh, in April, right after Easter, we're having a 24-7 prayer week where we are going to have a prayer meeting, and, and it's going to go 168 straight hours of just calling people to pray, and we'll open up our campus for that. So more details coming on that. And then just working in a few weekly rhythms uh, for corporate and individual prayer that we're going to start mixing in, um, inviting people to, to, to just stop, to slow down, to pray. And what it comes down to is that we're abiding in the presence of Jesus, like we, we, to have a deeper experience where we're abiding and prioritizing our life around abiding in Christ. Uh, the second movement was to maximize our property for the kingdom. So we, Desert City Church, we're here on nine acres. Uh, we've built on about half of them. And we have idle ground, and we have, we have needs as the church grows, really in our children's ministry. And as we looked at like a big picture of the, this property and, and the plan of, of, of what this property was going to be, our next steps was a, a classroom on the north side of the playground. And we felt like this was a time where uh, we're out of space for our children's ministry. It's going to open up more space for um, the rest of the campus to use, and it's the most urgent need. Uh, for, uh, for trying to minister to this community well with, with so many kids that are coming in. Um, and so we're, we've set out on a project that we're estimating the cost to be $1.5 million, and it's going to put in a 5,500-square-foot space with meeting classrooms with uh, kind of like a, a big room where kids can have like a worship experience, uh, worship service, um, and then a big lobby. We have no lobby space on campus, and so this would allow people to hang out inside it has a, a kind of an indoor-outdoor lobby um, that people can use throughout the week. And so we, we launched that this fall and said, we don't want idle ground. Let's move forward with it. Um, we had a vision night a few weeks ago, and we have just around 50 pledges. And with cash in hand, we're at about $700,000. And it's a good start. Um, we have, last year, 220-plus giving families or households in our church. So we've heard back from 50 of them. Uh, which means uh, there's, there's like 175 uh, who, who haven't made a pledge yet. And that, that's okay. We want people to pray about this. Uh, but if you're just doing simple math, like if, if all 175 uh, households we haven't heard back yet just do $1,000, that, that's $175,000. And then if, if they do more than that, that's more than that. You know, that's pastor math for you. Um, and so we, we have the capacity to do this as a church, and we're inviting you into generosity. For some people, it's above and beyond. For some people, maybe it's giving for the first time. Um, and, uh, and this is a, a way that we can give to something that's tangible, that, that's going to transform this property. And here's the thing. I, I haven't told the board this, but <laughs> if we take care of the children's first, then we could put in the pickleball court, okay? So <laughs> let's take care of the kids first, and then we'll look at the pickleball court after that. Um, but we'll hear more about that in the business meeting today. We're off to a good start, and are inviting people uh, um, into that. And then the third movement was, uh, was multiplying disciples. I'll get to the sermon here in a second. Remember, this is a recap of the series. Uh, we want to multiply disciples, and that's really the call of, of every church, is to, to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. It starts with evangelism. It's a word we don't use a lot anymore. Evangelism is, is reaching people who don't know Jesus and, and, and sharing the gospel with them. 
uh, to, to have an urgency to, to that message. Sometimes we just kind of get caught up in the rhythm of life and doing church, and we forget that we've been entrusted with this greatest story in the world. And so we, we start with uh, an urgency for evangelism, and then uh, uh, d- discipling people through, through mentoring, um, and then also through, through uh, church planting, through starting more churches. And so kind of long-term, like seven years down the road, we're gearing up. Uh, what we'd like to do is, is help with church starts either here in Phoenix or around the world um, in different places where we have connections. And church planting um, invites people to fall in love with Jesus in a brand new context. We are the beneficiaries of churches who've said, we need a church in this community, and they've empowered us to do it. Um, it, it, it gets people off the sidelines to, to jump in in different ways. It develops new leaders. And so this is something that we, we also want to say, how do we multiply disciples uh, here? So deeper maximizing and multiplication. And, and our thought is this is a new season where we're, we're moving into. So we looked at Joshua because Joshua is about God's people moving into a new season. And we call this getting ready to cross the river, where they cross the river into the promised land. And not that we're moving into the promised land, although Phoenix right now feels like the promised land, the weather outside. Um, but, but what can we learn from, from God when he takes a group of people and moves them into a new season? So Joshua 24 wraps up the whole book. And Joshua gives this farewell speech to the people of God. And when he does that, it tells us in verse 1, that Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem, and he summoned the elders and leaders and judges and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And then he, he gives this speech where he's speaking for God, and he's, he's also giving his own input. And as he does that, there's really three messages he has for God's people here. Um, this whole series I've been following David Jackman's commentary, and he has this great little outline for this chapter that will follow. But it says this, the, the first message is that the past is defined by God's grace. The past is defined by God's grace. And here are the words, verse 2. said, Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. I took your father, Abraham, from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Jacob and Esau. And I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. He's starting to retell their story, the people's story. Verse 5, he says, Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. And when I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them, and you saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time, and I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. As he's telling this story now, the the recipients of this message would have been children when he gets to this part. I destroyed them before you, and you took possession of the land. 
When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. Now this group of people would have been adults as they're hearing this. You crossed the Jordan, you came out of Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you as did also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent a hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. You live in them and eat from the vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. As this story is recounted, there is this reminder that God has provided, God has delivered, God has, his grace has been poured out time and time again in ways that are miraculous, in ways that are ordinary. And as the people of God are hearing this message, it would be this reminder, oh, this is nothing that we have done. This is what God has done. Today, uh, we're electing a new board member, and one of our board members is coming off. His name is Danny Slyke. Danny's been on the board for like the last seven years, and his term is up. And so we did like a, uh, I wrote him a card and kind of reflecting, and it's like, how do you like capture seven years of, of him leading and serving? But as I was thinking through all those things, it was like, man, it's amazing how much God has done in the last seven years, like in our lives and in the life of our church. Like when you look back over time, like here obviously hundreds of years they're looking back, you see stories of God's grace show up. And sometimes we miss that when we just reflect on the last year. Sometimes we, we, we get that. But when you look over the course of a long term, you see God's grace. This week is Thanksgiving. It's a time for us to point out those different blessings with gratitude. Those different things God has done that we, we take for granted we feel entitled to, we just assume we deserve it. And like, oh yeah, all of life is grace. God pours out blessings to us. And so often our default is to just focus on like all the things that are going wrong in life. At least that's what I do. I'm an external processor. I'm cynical. I'm skeptical. Marcy, it just, yeah, it's great to be married to someone like me. Let's just say that. But what gratitude does is it it points out all of those gifts and the stories where God just does so many things. Here's what G.K. Chesterton says about gratitude. He says, I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought, and gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. You think about that for your Thanksgiving this week. Gratitude, happiness doubled by wonder. We're called to to, to tell our story of, of the things that God has done, to remember them. This was, was so important for the Hebrews. So many of their psalms are psalms of thanksgiving. Like Psalm 105 and 106 basically retells this story that Joshua 24 tells. And, and you see the words, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. That part of their worship was to just gratitude for the gifts that God has done. Because our past all of a sudden starts to make sense when God enters into it and does work. Our past is defined by gratitude. Here's what Spurgeon says. Here's what I do. Like, we are too prone to engrave our trials on marble and write our blessings in sand. 
we, we so often focus on everything that's wrong, and we're like, but so much of life, all of life, is grace. Grace and gift from God. So here's a Thanksgiving question for you this week, is when was the last time you listed out all the blessings God has given you? To just write them out, maybe you have a journal, maybe you have a rhythm of gratitude. It's incredibly good for the soul, because our past is defined by God's grace, not by our failures, not by the things that we've got wrong, not by the things that we're ashamed of, but by who God is. And then here's the second thing. The second message is the present demands of God's grace is what we'll see next. So the past defined by God's grace, and then he starts talking about the present demands of God's grace. It says this in verse 14, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors, the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord and to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents out of Egypt from the land of slavery and performed those great signs beyond our eyes. He protected us on our journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. There's this demand on a, a life to live. And you think, well, that's funny because grace doesn't demand anything. But I would say this, when grace truly transforms us, it compels us to a life of purpose, a, a certain way of living, to fear the Lord, to serve him with faithfulness, to throw away gods of the past and idols of the past, to serve the Lord and to make a choice. My son Ezra, I think I started the whole series with talking about his flag football team like, the season just ended yesterday, and they got knocked out of the playoffs. And um, he was super bummed. They played great. Um, he played on a team that uh, one of the local Christian schools have, have put together. And this week, there's, there's two teams, flag football teams for 10-year-olds and under, that have, like, all the kids from the school play on. They're, like, trying to, like, build the culture so when they all get to high school, they have chemistry. Um, they had a practice on Thursday with the other team. It was a little heated. And uh, it was interesting, like, I, I, uh, this school, like, the athletic director from the school comes here, and he was, like, telling me about, oh, yeah, yeah, those little elementary school teams are playing together. And Ezra would always want to wear, like, you know, the school colors and the logo. And the teams don't allow that anymore. And what, what this guy was telling me was, well, yeah, because we're not endorsing those teams, and the, the teams will wear colors that represent who we are and our logo, and then sometimes it gets super competitive and, and, and angry. And that's just the parents, you know. And, and so we're like, that's great you guys are doing that. Just don't, you're not representing our school because we have standards that you need to represent. Um, and, and it's true, really, of, of a life transformed by grace. Like, we're, we're called to live a certain way. Like, grace does demand something from us, which is a life of, of fearing the Lord, a life of uh, throwing away other idols, a, a, life of, a life of serving. 
because uh, it, it means something to be a follower of Jesus. Our lives have been transformed by grace. They compel us to live a certain way. Joshua 1.8 says this. It's like the book, when, it, when, it's first, uh, when we first jump into Joshua, it says, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. To, to the future, or the, the present the demands of grace is to live a life that, that, that is compelled by the transformation and salvation that you have. What you do matters. Fear the Lord. Serve the Lord. Throw away old idols. And then finally, the future is dependent on God's grace. So the past is defined by God's grace. The present demands of God's grace compel us to live a certain way. And then the future is dependent on God's grace. Verse 19, Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is holy, a holy God. He is a jealous God. So he's like, that's great that you want to do this. But let me just tell you something. You're not going to do this. He knows the heart of humanity. Like, we all go to church Sunday, and then tomorrow's Monday. Well, luckily it's Thanksgiving week, but typically it's like, ah. Monday, like we go back into like this, like we're people, we're human, we're, we're frustrated, we make mistakes, we, we pursue all sorts of other things, and Joshua knows the heart of man. And he goes on to say, he's a jealous God, he will not forgive your rebellion and your sins, and if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign, foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. And then Joshua said, you are a witness against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord, our God, and obey him. And on that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. There at Shechem, he reaffirmed them, the decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. And then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, the stone will be a witness against you. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. And then Joshua dismissed them, the people, each to their own inheritance. And this is a reminder that grace, that salvation... It's, it's not our earning. It's not our effort. Although it compels us to live a certain way, it requires Jesus. It requires the cross. Like our future is dependent. Our, our heaven, eternity, is dependent on what God has done. And we, we talk about the work of God. There's the work that God does for us, which is the cross, which brings about salvation, which frees us from sin, which frees us from death. That work was done on the cross for us. Then there's the work that God is doing in us, which is renewing us, making us more like him. Some churches call it sanctification. Some churches call it holiness. But there's this, this renewal that is taking place. There's the work done for us. There's the work that's being done in us. And then there's the work that's being done through us that gives our life purpose individually and as a church where we become the hands and feet, the body of Christ, working for a purpose. The past is defined by God's grace. The present demands of God's grace call us to live a certain way. And the future is dependent on God's grace, not on our earning for salvation. 
I want to close our time today with some, um, a story that Jesus, it's about Jesus, and it's a Thanksgiving story. And uh, it's a short sermon today. Um, maybe not have felt like that, but we're, we're, ending, we're ending quickly today. I've gone long the last couple of weeks, and the children's ministry is mad at me. So I'm trying to get a short one in here. Um, but I do want to take this time uh, for us to reflect And um, this Thanksgiving story takes place in Luke chapter 17. It says, Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village, ten men who had met him, they stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. So right there you have God's sovereign ability in our obedient activity, right? One of them, verse 15, one of them, when he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. So here you have this story of these men who have leprosy. They cry out to God. They cry out to Jesus. And he heals them. All of them. He heals them physically. And only one returns to give thanks. There's all sorts of reasons why, but one comes back with thanksgiving, and what we find is that in thanksgiving, there's a, there's a spiritual transformation that takes place in the story. And he says, your faith has healed you. There's something deeper that has happened because he has come back to God in gratitude. Thanksgiving is incredibly powerful. Gratitude is incredibly powerful when we acknowledge what God has done for us, and we acknowledge the gifts that he's given us in this life. And so today, as we close this time, maybe for you, it's, it's uh, thinking of how your past has been redefined by the grace of God today. It's no longer defined by failure. It's no longer defined by shame, by the things that you've got wrong. It's defined by what God has done. And maybe today there's uh, something that is compelling you, to the, 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 that transformation compels you to live a certain way. And you have this like stirring in your heart that you know God is, is calling you. Maybe today it's, it's hoping your future, putting your hope in the grace of God. Maybe you've never done that today for salvation. We're going to just take some time today um, as we close with communion to, to, to celebrate his grace. Communion is um, an act of gratitude. And as we come to the communion table, we've got communion today. Past, there's different spots in the room where you can move to when you're ready. But I want to read this passage from the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to uh, a church in one of the most pagan cities on earth. It's in Corinth, and there's this church that's meeting there. And these are the words that he says. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Today, we want to invite you to this table and to come with a posture of gratitude, giving thanks for what God has done. I love that story. It it opens with him saying, the night Jesus was betrayed, he shows them the full extent of his love. This is the kind of savior that we follow. And then it also tells us it's not just remembrance, but it's proclamation. When When we participate in the Eucharist, we're proclaiming this gospel message that we're a part of a a different type of kingdom with a different type of king. And we're proclaiming this gospel message to the world. So today, when you're ready, we have the elements on both sides of the room. Feel free to take it on your own. We're going to close with a song about surrender and come today with a heart of gratitude. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day, for your love and for your grace. Lord, for your the sovereign ability, your will for our life. We want to respond with obedient activity, Lord, individually and as a church, that you would move here among us. Lord, this week of Thanksgiving, we want to be intentional, remembering the gifts you place in our lives. There's so much we take for granted. Lord, I ask that you would compel us to a life of significance and purpose. Lord, I pray that we would put our hope in you for our future. Maybe some for the first time today. So we give you this time. We love you. and It's in your name we pray.